Okay, we've been walking through the book of James, and we are going to take a little bit of a pause today and next week. Obviously, next week is Easter. Today is Palm Sunday. And I began to think about, okay, what? Um, this was Jesus' last week, and he knew it. And so that's different than most of us. Most of us aren't going to know when our time is up. But Jesus knew when his time was up. And so it makes sense to me that if Jesus knew, and I, I believe he did. In fact, let's look at the text and I'll, I'll show you something. Um, hello? Uh, can you do it for me? <clears throat> Jesus said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover celebration begins in two days, and I will be betrayed and crucified. I, maybe I turned it on the wrong side. Oh, <laughs> it's my fault. Okay, all right. All right. There, it's, it's like so many, so many buttons. There are two, and I did the wrong one. Okay, so let me go back. Yeah, it's all good now. Okay. So now everybody is, you're probably thinking, he is really stupid. Uh, what is he, can he, what can he tell us about the Bible? He can't even work a machine. Anyway, um, so Jesus knows his time has come. He knew this for a while. And so one would think that he strategically planned his last few days. In fact, we're going to look at, that, at five things he did the last day of his life. Because, I don't know about you, but if I had a last day, uh, I would certainly plan it, right? If I knew this was my last day, I would plan it out. And I began to think, all right, what, are there any, is there anybody that ever knows it's their last day? And, and there are some people, like convicted criminals, know it's their last day. And sometimes they ask for unusual meals. And so this guy, Ronnie Lee Gardner, he wanted lobster tail, steak, apple pie, and vanilla ice cream. And he ate it while he was watching Lord of the Rings trilogy, which just shows what a weirdo he was. All right, so uh, that's one thing. Oh, I'm sorry for all of you trilogy people. All right. Um, Jeffrey Barney went with the uh, two boxes of cornflakes and milk. He went Jethro Bodine on us. And so uh, that's what he wanted. Um, John Wayne Gacy was quite a horrible person, and uh, he wanted 12 fried shrimp, I don't know why 12, a bucket of chicken because he used to work at KFC, french fries, and a pound of strawberries. So that's not, a, not the worst best, last meal. Uh, Ricky Ray Rector, which is a great name, except if you're a killer, um, asked for steak, fried chicken, cherry Kool-Aid, and pump, uh, pecan pie, or do you say pecan? How do we say it here? Pecan. We say it the right way. Okay. Um, and he left the pecan pie telling the guard uh, he was saving it for later, which is kind of funny if you think about it. Um, this, this one is odd. Victor, what's his name here? Um, Figure, let's go with that. Um, he wanted a single olive with the pit still in it. And the notion around this was that when he died and his body was buried, this olive pit would become a tree and emerged from his dead body, and it would be a symbol of peace. And that, uh, by the way, didn't, didn't work out. So, um, if you had a last day, all right, this is my last day. What am I going to do? How many of you would go to work? Or how many of you would go to school? Or would you do a load of laundry on your last day? Or would you cook a dinner? Or would you do the dishes? Or would you mow the yard? I mean, would you go gas the car up? Would you come to church? What would If you had a last day... What would you do? And I began to think about it. It's like, well, you know, I'd want to spend it with family. And I, I, I thought about going to Popeye's, but I think I would probably expire before I got through the line. So that wouldn't even be any good. So what are you going to do with your life if you have one last day? So Jesus strategically plans this last day and his last week. And, and really, you have to understand 
Palm Sunday to get to the last day because Palm Sunday sort of inaugurates his last week. It's called the Passion Week. And, and there are certain things that happen during this week. And Jesus knew it was going to happen. Now, the reason for Palm Sunday was, was this. Um, when, when Jesus, or here, this talks about Palm Sunday, and we'll talk about it just for a second. When Jesus came near Jerusalem, the whole crowd of disciples began, began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so there was much acclaim, like a, a bit like a parade. And you may have studied this before when, sometime in your life. When Jesus came in, he was riding on a, a donkey and um, it's raining. Wow. Um, uh, if lights go out, you're dismissed. Uh, just so you know, I know there's a storm that's supposed to be coming. Uh, Jesus enters on a donkey. Uh, people are laying down palm branches. And it's the palm branch, we sort of just miss it. Uh, in that time, in that era, that meant a, a sign of victory. And so Jesus enters on Palm Sunday to great acclaim, except there's one contingency of people. Look at the last sentence. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, the Pharisees didn't particularly like Jesus because Jesus was popular. And Jesus would teach things contrary to what they would teach. And there's, there's one teaching about uh, the Pharisees said... Um, uh, you could keep your money and not give it, not help your parents when they got older, if you committed it to God. And and Jesus was like, no, 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 that's not how it works. And so Jesus would correct them on lots of different things, because the Bible contains commandments, and then the Pharisees talked about it and they came up with nuances to the commandments. So when the Bible says, um, don't work on a Sunday, uh, the, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, and you're not supposed to work. The question then is, well, what, what constitutes work, <laughs> right? And so to answer the question, the Pharisees got together and they, they said, okay, you can, walk, I forget, you can walk a mile, but you can't walk a mile and a tenth. So they, were, they put these limits. And so the, now the limits that, that were man-contrived were considered equal. And Jesus was like, no, 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 that's not how it works. Those are just man-made rules. That has nothing to do with the law. And they didn't like that. Obviously, they were challenge Jesus challenged their authority. Jesus challenged them in lots of ways. Uh, popularity. He was very wildly popular. And so, if there was a headline in the news after Jesus was crucified, it would say, Jealous Jewish leaders behind the death of popular young rabbi. And these guys, it's like a CSI episode. When the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. Now, we think to ourselves, okay, these are religious leaders. What in the world are they doing planning a, next, uh, you know, a, a hit? <laughs> they were trying to figure out how can we manipulate the situation so that Jesus might die. Now, I'm a religious leader. I can't even imagine that ever coming into my mind. How can I manipulate a situation where somebody might die? But these guys, they enjoyed their popularity. They enjoyed their esteem. And they didn't like the fact that there was a guy who was taking that away from them. And so, they contrived this plan. Now, th this is one of those verses that's just, it's a little, it's not creepy, but it, it's um, sad. It's a really sad verse. Many people, including some of the Jewish leaders, don't, let's, not, let's go slow. 
Many people, including some of the Jew Jewish leaders, believed in Jesus and Him. But they wouldn't admit it to anyone because of their fear that the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than the praise of God. It costs something to follow Jesus. And, and one of the things that you know as well as I do is that change is difficult. So you've learned a system, a religious system. You've learned it. And the Jewish people had a system. And the Pharisees were part of the system. And if you followed Jesus, if you went from here to following Jesus, now you're outside the system. And being outside the system had consequences. If you're outside the Jewish system and you're Jewish, then you might lose your job or people wouldn't do business with you. I mean, it, it could cost you financially. It could cost you relationally because people that you knew and your friends now all of a sudden maybe wouldn't want to be associated with you if you follow Christ. And these people, let me go back, they considered the cost, many people, not just a few, many people, including some higher ups, they believed, they believed Jesus, they just didn't believe him enough. And, and this is troublesome, because if it could happen then, it probably could happen now. There might be some of us in this room who we like the notion of Jesus as long as it doesn't cost us anything. Change is difficult. And while I might not like my life the way it is, I'm comfortable with my life the way it is. And I would rather do what I know and not like it than do something different because it might be worse or harder or more difficult. And so I just stay in this lane. I don't get out of this lane even though this is the wrong lane. And that's... Look... For these religious leaders to become a follower of Jesus, it would be like being the chairman of the American Cattlemen's Association becoming a vegan. You can do it, but none of your peers are going to like you anymore, right? And that's what it was like. You, you could do it, it's just nobody wanted to do it. Or very few did. We have examples of a couple of guys. There's a guy named Nicodemus who became a follower of Jesus. There's a guy named um, Joseph of Arimathea who were both very prominent religious people who threw in with Christ but it was the exception, not the rule. All right, so Jesus did some things this last week to say, all right, if you're going to be all in with me, because as we saw in that verse, there were people who were thinking about it. So Jesus wanted to show us, I think all of us, his disciples certainly, but, but us today, what does it look like to really follow Christ? And so he set an example for us to follow that day. As a parent, have you ever caught yourself being a bad example? I'll give you an, ex an example. The other day I was, I was driving and my 12-year-old daughter was in the car with me and I heard her say, come on, man, pick a lane. <laughs> and we drove a little further and she said, they put a blinker on that car for a reason. And I thought to myself, she's learned that. And I'm really, I'm considering not letting her ride with Miriam anymore. I really, I'm, I'm really kind of worried about it a little bit. So you could be a good example, bad example, right? And so Jesus sets an example. He showed them what to do. It was just before the Passover feast, so that in the upper room, it was just before the Passover feast, and Jesus knew the time had come for him to leave. There's, he knew what was going to happen. 
Uh, he was going to leave this world, go to his father. So he got up from his meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. And you must understand this to make this, this make for this to make sense. Uh, leaders did not wash feet. They just did, that's not something a leader would do. Uh, you had slaves for that. Uh, the the youngest child was the one who washed feet. If you didn't have a slave. The head of the family, a, a, a dad, would never wash feet. A rabbi would never wash feet. This would be like the president of the United States coming to your house and cleaning out your gutters or helping you dig out your septic tank. It just isn't done. It, you wouldn't expect it. it. It's beyond belief. And if... Jesus did something. I guarantee you, everyone in the room, all those men in the room would be like, what are you doing? In fact, Peter said to him, no, 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 no. And Jesus was like, yes, yes, yes. Isn't it funny? Sometimes we tell God no, and, and Jesus was like, <laughs> I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Jesus basically said to Peter, shut up. Let me do what I'm going to do. I, I know what I'm doing. And I think God sometimes says... Listen, be quiet for just a second. Let me do this. I know what I'm doing. President Carter, former President Carter, I, I mean, I wasn't a big fan of his policies, but I do really appreciate the fact that he joined in with Habitat for Humanity. He sets an example, and Jesus sets this example. He, he starts to wash their feet, and then he tells them why he washed their feet. Not only did he... He, he showed them, but now he told them, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also uh, wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And I think it's amazing to me that he doesn't command them to do this. He says you should choose to do this. He says it three times in here. You should choose. Uh, I've, you should wash one another's feet. I've set an example for what you should do. Now that uh, if you do these things, you will be blessed. You should do it. It's a, there's a blessing involved, but you don't have to. And for us, those of us who follow Christ, we don't have to serve. We don't have to. We should. We should. There's blessing. Blessing in following. There's blessing in serving. You should. It's, it's remarkable to me that he just says you should. He doesn't say you will. Jesus gives us lots of freedom in our lives to do and to follow a certain way. Let me tell you a story. This is a couple. They have two sons, and I'll just have to read the story for you because it's interesting. We have two sons, and in bringing them up, we've been more... We've been very careful to instill in them the belief that money uh, cannot buy happiness or love. On the other hand, we've also impressed upon them the importance of the bottom line. With that in mind, we developed our own last will and testament for our family alone. As we explained to our sons, we have two sons, our will includes three unusual features. Number one, it's on a computer. It is revised frequently and at random intervals. Number two, the will leaves everything to one son and absolutely nothing to the other. Number three, the one who gets everything is determined by which son has been the most thoughtful and attentive to us recently. <laughs> Past actions count for nothing. It only is what's been done recently. Then they end. 
It is simply amazing how loving, thoughtful, and considerate those boys have been uh, these past few months since we instituted uh, this program. We ought to serve. Jesus said, you should do this. We ought to do this. And he sets this example. And I want the, the part about this whole story about Jesus washing the disciples' feet is that Judas was in the room. I can't get my mind around that exactly. Now, Jesus knew he was going to be betrayed, and I believe he knew who was going to betray him. In fact, Jesus said to Judas, what you must do, go do quickly. It's not like it shocked him that Judas was going to betray him. Judas is in the room, and he washes his feet. If there was one dude I was going to skip, that would have been the guy. It's like, who's, who's, who's the betrayer? Oh, it's the one who didn't wash his feet. It, to me, just to me, it seems like Jesus never gives up on us. I mean, even to the end. Do you imagine, perhaps, that Jesus thought... If I do this, maybe, maybe he'll, maybe it'll click. Maybe Judas won't go through with this. Perhaps this one act, this final act of serving will be enough to flip the switch to help him know what it says to me is None of us are ever so far gone that he doesn't keep trying. If he would wash the feet of Judas, what would he do for us? I mean, it's, it's, it's the most remarkable. He's amazing. It's easy to serve people that you like. It's sometimes easy to serve people that you don't know. It's wildly difficult to serve people that are going to stab you in the back, that have stabbed you in the back. God gives us these opportunities to serve. They, they happen all the time. On Friday night, Miriam and I went with two other couples um, all of our kids play soccer together and so at, at school. And so these, we don't really know these couples real well. Um, we know their kids a little bit because we see them playing soccer, and we see the, the families at soccer games. And so we decided we were going to go out for, for dinner, for pizza. And uh, so we meet at the pizza place, and, and the kids are at the table. It's um, Elise. I had, to think, I had to go through all four kids' names. Uh, Elise. i got four daughters. I mean, that's, that's what you do when you get old. Uh, Elise. And then her... Her friends were at this table, and uh, we're at my table, and there's this couple, and this couple, and that dude, and then Miriam and me. It's like, okay, so I'm mentally doing this whole thing. All right, these two people, those are the, these two kids are theirs, and this couple, that's their daughter, and there's Miriam and me, and Elise is ours, so there's four kids and three parents, and we own all the kids, and that dude, his name's Norman. I've never seen Norman. 
So we're hanging out, we're having dinner, three of us, three couples, and Norman. He's very polite, very friendly. And we get done, and we go to have ice cream, and Norman doesn't come with us. And I said to, I said to my buddy, Mike, I said, Mike, who is Norman? He said, oh, um, I was waiting for Beth. He's, I waited for my wife outside, and Norman was there, and I, was, I began a conversation with me. And Norman said he was hungry. I said, well, Norman, we're about to have dinner. You want to come in and eat with us? So he invited this dude, he doesn't know, to come in and have dinner with us. Opportunities are everywhere to serve people. It was great, by the way. It was awesome. And it was kind of cool. We all got to pay, and Norman got a meal, and he got to take some extra home. And we talked about life and church, and he asked some questions, really interesting stuff, you know. Hey, what do you think about? It's like, oh, I'll tell you what I think. Here's, here's the deal. And God gives us opportunities to serve. We should serve. The second thing he did, he gave us a way to remember him. It's called communion. And this coming Friday, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. It's called Eucharist. It's called a lot of things. But we're going to take the Lord's Supper on Friday, Good Friday. You know, the, the truth of the matter is Jesus never asked us to remember his birth, but he did ask us to remember his death uh, burial and resurrection. That's what we do during communion. And Jesus took Passover meal and he sort of morphed it into something else, into the Lord's Supper. And I'm going to talk about that on Friday a bit. But Jesus wants us to remember the sacrifice that he made. Not, not particularly Christmas. I mean, I, Christmas is okay, but he says, hey, man, Easter's a big deal for us because it's a big deal. Then he gave us a command to obey. A new command to obey. Um, last will and testaments are interesting. I, I've, I've read a few, and I, these are super interesting. Benjamin Franklin, you all know who this is. He invented electricity uh, or something. I, what did Ben Franklin do? He did something, didn't he? I mean, we know him. What did you? Somebody. He invented, he, he discovered or whatever, electric. He is the electric guy. He had the key on the string. Is that right? Okay, good. Because I said that, and then I'm like, you all looked at me like, that's not right. And I'm like, it is right. Okay. All right. Now, so all y'all back off. Okay. Now, Ben Franklin. He was also the ambassador to, to France, I think, at one time in his life. And while he was the ambassador, he received a gift from the nation of France or wherever. And it had King Louis the Sixteenth picture, and the frame was um, studded in diamonds. Four hundred and eight diamonds are in the frame of this picture that he received as a gift for being ambassador to France. And so his last will and testament, he says this about his daughter, Sarah. He says, uh, my last wish is that uh, my daughter, Sarah, not engage in the expensive, vain, and useless pastime of wearing jewelry. He was afraid she was going to pluck the diamonds off the frame of this picture and make jewelry out of it. Well, fortunately for Ben, uh, she didn't do that. She sold the whole thing and they went on a European vacation. So it uh, uh, didn't kind of work out the way he thought. Um, Harry Houdini had a last will and testament. Now, Houdini, uh, his mom died, and then he be became uh, obsessed with spiritism and that sort of thing and having seances. And so uh, his last will and testament was on, on October 31st every year uh, to his wife, have a seance, and I'll try to communicate with you. And he gave her ten random words so that they would know that she would know it was really him, not some fake. And for ten years she tried it, and Houdini never showed up, so she quit. And Jesus has the last will and testament too. And he says this, this is powerful. 
Jesus said, the time has now come for me, he, he knows, to enter into my glory. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Now before, remember when he said serve people, it was you should. Now he's commanding, different. It's a whole different animal, right? You should do this. I'm commanding you to do this. This is like if I say to Elise, you should pick up your clothes. Or if I say to her, uh, you will pick up your clothes. Two different, two different, uh, two different things, right? So... I'm leaving you a new commandment. This is what you must do. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. We exhibit God's love by loving other people. God's love in us reflects onto other people. There's a guy named Steve Sogren. He used to be the pastor of a church in Cincinnati. and that used to, It's pretty close to where I, I lived, and I kind of knew of him a little bit. Um, and they would do things called conspiracy of kindness. And so um, their church grew and grew and grew because they would go do... They would, they would like volunteer to go clean the restrooms at gas stations and just do it and just say... Christ loves you, and we love you, and we, wish, we want to give you a visible expression of Christ's love for you. And we're going to do this for you. No charge, nothing. We're from you know, the, the Vineyard Church, or Vine, I forget what it was, Vineyard Church. And, and we're going to do that. And they would, he would have teams of people from his church that go do things just to serve people. And he talks about a time he moved, he and his wife moved to California. And... He had neighbors, and he said as soon as he moved into the cul-de-sac, he knew these two neighbors were at odds with one another. One was a, a Christian that had Jesus fish on the back of their car. You know, They were outspoken Christians, and the other people weren't. And one day he was out in his yard, and he was, um, he was cleaning up or whatever, and his neighbor said, Hey, Steve, you're a pastor, aren't you? I have a question. Now, sometimes that's good, and sometimes that's not good. And so he began to un- unpack this situation Hey, Steve, I've got this neighbor, he's a Christian, and we've always been at odds with one another. And he kind of talked about that a little bit. Hey, um, he, he just seems unreasonable. And he said, but you're not going to believe what he just did. <laughs> and Sogren talks about it. It's like, oh, you know. Whenever somebody says, hey, you're not going to believe what your Christian brother did, it's like, oh, I don't want to hear it. He said, the Christian neighbor of mine just sent me a letter from his lawyer that said, I'm gonna, I need to trim my orange tree, or he's going to sue me. And this is the quote. You know, I was getting ready to trim that tree, but now there's no way on earth I'm going to do anything until he forces me. I'll gladly go to court just so I can have a story to tell about being sued by a Christian over an orange tree. Wow. When Jesus says, love one another... It doesn't mean just people like you. Jesus is the one who washed the feet of the guy who was going to betray him. You know, I guess he set more than one example when he washed those feet. Because he certainly set the example of serving, but he, man, he set the example of loving people who aren't very lovely. Then he asks us to make a choice. He shouted to the crowd, If you trust me, you are really trusting God who sent me. For when you see me, you are seeing the one who sent me. It's a little complex. He's saying, hey, when you see me, you see God. I've come as light to shine in this dark world so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the darkness. And just like that verse that we read that I was troubled by earlier, where it says there were people who believed in him, but they were afraid. 
Jesus is saying, listen, don't be afraid. You can trust me. We, we're, we live in America. It costs us very little to be a Christian. You realize, don't you, there are places in this world today that to follow Christ would co could cost you your life. You know this? I'm reading this amazing book um, by a guy named Nick Ripkin. It's the uh, something of obedience. Um, I can't remember now. No, the something of... I don't Nick Ripkin, N-I-K. He was, um, he was a, a pastor from Kentucky, so he was great, and um, I like that guy. And he became a missionary to Somalia, and while in Somalia, he saw very little, they, they did aid and help people live, but not many converts to Christ. And so he came home, got malaria, they came home to the United States, and he began to wonder, what do you do... <laughs> How do people do it that are being successful reaching people for Christ in very difficult situations? And so he set out for two years and he went places where people are having success in difficult situations. So he went to, to, to Russia, before Russia, um, before the Iron Curtain fell. He went to Russia and he went to Afghanistan and he went to uh, Kazakhstan and he, went, and he went to China. You realize, I, I hope you realize this. That last Sunday, I think, I think it was two, I know it was at least one, one Christian or one or two Christian churches were closed by the Chinese government just because they were Christian. They were meeting, it was a house church, or it might have been a building like this, and they broke in and they arrested the, the leadership. I mean, we're, we don't, that's not going to happen here. What would it be like? What would it be like? To serve in a place, to follow Jesus in a place where it cost you something. He was interviewing these pastors in China. And, and they would say, you know, our, our pastors are all jailed. Most every pastor has been to jail. And they talked about this one guy and he said, he's, he's young. He'll be, he'll be a great pastor, but he's not been to jail yet. So he's not quite, you know, he hadn't really earned his stripes. That's kind of what they were saying. And, and they said, you know, when we're in jail together, us pastors, we talk about the Bible. It's kind of like seminary. I went to seminary in Fort Worth. It was easy. Not, but it was easy. These guys go to jail. Because they love Jesus. They're told if you renounce your faith in Christ, we'll let you out now. Story after story after story of men and women who chose to follow Jesus and it cost them something. If Miriam and I go to a restaurant and we get out of the car and she takes off her wedding ring. And as we're walking, she says, hey, could you walk behind me a little bit? And when we get in the door, if she says, I'd like separate tables, there's a problem. I'm not really smart, but I know that's an issue, right? Jesus is saying, if you trust me and you're really trusting God, you should show this. In the first century when this was said, when this was written, it cost you something 
We just saw the verse. They, there were people who believed in Jesus, but they didn't want to go with him because they were afraid of what the Pharisees might do. I don't know that we as Americans can even understand this. I mean, that would preach in China. Good grief. If you follow Christ, there's a good chance you're going to get in trouble. You've got to consider the cost. What, what cost do we have? What, what, what cost is there to follow Jesus here? Somebody might say something mean to you on Twitter. Mm. I mean, really, seriously. Jesus is saying, you can trust us. We're trustworthy. And even though it might cost you something, it might be difficult, you might lose business, you might go to jail. Do you know every disciple died a, a horrific death? Every one of them. Peter was crucified upside down for Christ. The only one that kind of did okay was, was John and he was exiled. None of them ended up... You ought to read Fox's Book of Martyrs. None of them ended up too good. But they were all willing to put their lives on the line because they love Christ. He's trustworthy. And when you find it costing you something, it might cost you a relationship. It might cost you financially. We either believe God or we don't. We believe what Jesus said or we don't. I, I, get, I hardly ever talk about money because I, I know it's offensive to people. But Jesus said it's, better, it's more blessed to give than to receive. We either believe that or we don't. We, he's either right or he's not. And Jesus is saying, I'm trustworthy. The stuff I said is true. You should throw in with me. And then he gives us a promise. It's a great verse. Don't let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There's our word again. Trust. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. There's a scene that happens every Sunday out here in these hallways. We have parents with little kids who bring their children to preschool, to the nursery here, and there's something called separation anxiety. You may have witnessed it. You could witness it pretty much every Sunday. It's basically the child thinking that their parents are going to drop them off and never come back, right? Now, that's different than when they become 20 and you have, are there ever going to be a separation anxiety? That's like, are you ever going to leave? But that's different. That's different. Now, I remember what Miriam would say to our girls, because even pastor's kids go through separation anxiety. I know it's surprising maybe to some. And she would drop them off, and she would, she would say, I've heard her say this a thousand times, Mommy always comes back. You know Mommy always comes back. And it seemed to calm them. And they would go into their little classrooms. Mommy always comes back. And I read this verse. And when I first read it, I'm like, that's what, that's what Miriam used to say. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come back. I'll always come back. And we might be anxious. Oh, this life is just throwing me some curveballs this week or this month or this year. Life's not what I had planned. Yeah, but this isn't all there is. He's going to prepare a place for us. 
when he gets it ready, he's going to come back for us. This isn't all there is. This isn't the best life. This is life before real life. This is life before eternal life. This is life before we get the best life. This isn't all there is. We get kind of worried about this stuff. It's not all there is. Jesus is like, come on, man. I'm going away. But I always come back. So he, he gives us an example to follow. And the questions we have to ask ourselves are, well, okay, am I serving like I need to serve? It doesn't have to be in a church. It can be anywhere, like, like with Norman. Can I, can I serve? Is there a way for me to serve? Am I missing opportunities because I should take them? Am I loving like he wants me to, he commanded me to? Have I made a choice to be all in even if it costs me something? Do I really believe the promise that he's coming back? Because if I really believe the promise that he's coming back, the little bit of trouble I might have here pales in comparison to eternity with him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus' last day. And there's so much he taught us and showed us. Help us to be people who love, even the people who hurt us. Help us to be people who serve, even when we don't feel like serving. Help us to be people who are willing to sacrifice for following your Son. Help us to be people filled with hope. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.